Hello everyone, it's November 26, 2019. Yeah, that Starship Mark 1 blew its top. Too much pressure, bad welding, we'll talk about it. And then we're talking to Elena Zorsoli Rossi from ThrustMe, a company doing cool stuff with ion thrusters and iodine. Why is that so cool? Stick around and lift off. Welcome to episode 237 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And no Dennis today again. He's off doing a field trip or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's at uh, Kit Peak um, with his students. I almost did a Dennis impression, but I mean, it's just, and I'm Dennis. Like, I mean. Yeah, yeah. There's not much more to it. So I guess I have to ask, uh, how do you feel about that Cybertruck? Let's pick a divisive issue right here. Yeah, so I don't hate it. I don't know if I love the design, but I definitely don't hate it. And I disagree with most people because I think Tesla shares dropped by like 6%. So uh, a lot of people really, really hate it. And I don't, I don't think I quite hate it. You know, and I kind of feel the same way. I, I, I mean, I, I definitely don't hate it. I think it's a very ambitious choice. And did you get the notion maybe that the reason why they chose that particular style, if you will, is, is because manufacturing flat services is way easier than curved ones. And so they're trying to keep the price down. And so yeah. that kind of influenced the decision. Well, I, I think there are two really good uh, justifications for the triangle or the pyramid design. Um, so first off, it's a unibody vehicle. And, you know, most trucks are like body on frame. And mm-hmm. so like, basically, when you when you buy a bigger truck or a heavier truck, what you're paying for is a heavier frame. Like the amount that you can tow or the amount that you can carry is limited by the frame, not by the engine. And so body on frame allows you to have this really, really, really chunky frame at the bottom of your vehicle that carries all of the loads on the vehicle. They're doing unibody, which means that the entire body is like a like a big cage that the forces flow through and the entire body is responsible for carrying those loads and since uh since a truck doesn't have so so a, a unibody acts like like a bridge like not like a suspension bridge what's it called like a trestle bridge where the bottom is in tension the top is in compression and so when you get rid of most of the material above the belt line uh which it, so so like the the windows, uh, the bottom of the windows is called the belt line on a vehicle, and the area above the windows is called the greenhouse. On a truck, the greenhouse doesn't have much structural uh, responsibility, but on a unibody vehicle, it has a lot of <laughs> structural responsibility because it's it's all in compression. And in fact, when when Simone Yertz made her truckla, um, they actually cut through the roof rail just behind the B pillar and ended up pinching their saw because the top of the vehicle is in compression. Mm-hmm. And so w- without that D pillar at the very back, like an SUV has, like the thing just has a, an A and a B pillar, <laughs> nothing behind that. So you don't have a C or a D pillar in the back. And so you lose all those compressive forces. Mm-hmm. And so the thing is going to bend in half like a banana if you treat it like a truck. And so they have to have those diagonal pillars that run from the back of the cab to the back of the truck, the back of the bed. And so that shape is pretty much, you have to have that. So like, that's why a Camaro has that same shape, you know, like the the pickup. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, the fact that they picked a unibody means that they have to have something like this shape. They probably could have gotten away with something less severe, but if they want this thing to really be able to tow the high loads that they want, because this is their first three-engine vehicle, potentially, you know, this comes in an option. Mm-hmm. 
So like they really want this thing to be a powerhouse. And if that's the case, you you know, the bigger that that diagonal pillar, I think it's called a sail pillar. The bigger it is, the better. So so that kind of defines the overall shape. And then once you've once you're there, I, I don't think it takes very long for your 12 year old CEO to go, Ooh, let's do something that looks like mm-hmm. it came out of Blade Runner. So, so those are my, those are my two, or that, that's kind of my thought process is that it starts with the structure and then it moves towards this aesthetic and then other things. Cause like having that overall structure derived from the unibody doesn't mean that you have to have faceted, uh, mm-hmm. fenders over the wheels. Like that's not what, <laughs> but, but yeah. all these, all these stylistic choices, I think followed on that that engineering decision. So I just checked and maybe Tesla's stock went down and maybe this doesn't mean much here because it's not a lot of money, but they have already 146,000 reservations, although mm-hmm. that's just putting down $100 and that's fully refundable. So, so yeah, that's whereas the Model right. 3 was $1,000. Right. Yeah. So that seemed like they were more serious because if you have to put down $1,000, you mean it, but uh, you know, a hundred, I'm guessing a, a lot of people did it just to say that they did, you know, yeah, <laughs> like 146,000 orders of this truck i mean that would be cool to see and that's a big order to fulfill by the way and they still have yeah. years before they even put out the first one yeah so well and you know model three did not deliver very quickly it took forever for nope. them to get that thing out but did you see the other vehicle that was announced that night the, the four um, the four-wheeler the four-wheeler yeah <laughs> I, I you know it's funny i i guess i didn't watch the whole the whole video because i didn't see that i mean i saw a brief clip but i don't know much about it except that that's an option right that you can yeah. get a four-wheeler yeah, I mean it it charges in the bed. Um the bed all like the tailgate uh the tailgate folds down and forms a ramp. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know. It it seems really gimmicky. I'd be kind of surprised if it actually made it to production, but you know, it's a fun idea at very least. Yeah. It's a little bit more practical than like a flamethrower, but it's it's you know kind of <laughs> the same idea. Like, hey, we'll throw in a four-wheeler, you know. That's totally Elon's idea, clearly. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I guess that's enough uh, Tesla talk, but we can we can talk about the other company. Yeah. That's exactly what we're about to do. So there was an overpressurization issue a couple, I guess this was last week. This was almost exactly a week ago because I think it was the day after we recorded. So it's, it's, I think it's been about a good seven days. Um, so we didn't get to talk about it last episode, but yeah, the Mark one starship overpressurization or pressurization event, I should say not overpressurization because it depends on what we mean by that. Well, it, it depends. It depends on how the rumors spill out, but we'll talk about that in a sec. Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to mention that uh, Scott Manley rechristened this the starship popper and i highly approve (laughs) of that rename so you have in your notes here it kind of exploded so was that just to be funny because it did more than kind of exploded well i mean there there wasn't there wasn't like explosive like it it wasn't uh uh, not in all tech uh uh, technical explosion because you know explosion has a a very well i guess i guess it'd be high explosive so it's it's a low explosion but it's a pressure uh, yeah, I think I think Sam in the chat's got it right. They called it a burst. A yeah, burst. It, there you it go. burst. I like that. So the forward dome popped off. So they didn't have the fairing on top installed. So the nose cone. So this is just the dome on the on the top propellant tank. Things have gone back and forth a little bit, whether this was the methane dome or the LOX dome, because the official renders have shown LOX being at the top of the vehicle and methane being at the bottom. Um, but a rumor uh, that was originally posted on 4chan and then showed up on Reddit and the NASA Space Flight Forum, we'll have links 
to uh, both of those in the show notes, um, indicates that it was actually the methane dome was on top and the lox dome was on the bottom. Uh, but I, I think that's, it came, the rumor came from 4chan. It's not, yeah, it's not I don't super, know about that. Um, but a, a more trustworthy, uh, rumor seems to indicate that this was actually, um, an overpressure. So they weren't just, um, going above the, uh, densification pressure, right? So the, the way that SpaceX does it is they have their cold propellants and then they can make them even colder to be more dense. So you can pack more into the fuel tank and you can get more into the engine for a higher thrust. And so it, it, what they intended to do was to get to that flight pressure, um, get to the densified flight pressure, and then get a little bit beyond that. I think it's, you know, one and a half, two times beyond that, um, just to get to the edge of the engineering design limits. Cause you know, you all over-engineer all this stuff, but back channel seemed to indicate that there was actually, um, a ground equipment issue where uh, the pumps were allowed to overpressurize it beyond that the, the over design limit and that it actually got way beyond that so when you were kind of uh, quailing at the word overpressure I, I actually think that there's a pretty good chance that this was a true overpressure they didn't mean to, to pressurize it this much okay yeah so i hadn't heard that particular back channel rumor i guess um yeah i mean that was my first question is it because the tweet by elon i think said that it was pressurized to its max limit but or or something to that effect but i was wondering like max as in the operating pressure or the maximum pressure that it can withstand the actual design limit but i never got mm -hmm. a clarification on that so you think that it was pressurized yeah. like even beyond that yeah so that this wasn't supposed to happen because most of the rumors seemed to indicate that the real issue was with bad welding. So that's the 4chan rumor is that the welds yeah. were were not up to snuff. And and that's mm -hmm. really troubling. <laughs> if that's the case, that's really troubling. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's troubling if this is what they're planning on actually doing, you know, further tests with, but we all know that they do plan on using what was it like some sort of a big robotic welder for Mark III. And plus, they're just going to use a single, I think it's what, like a one big giant single sheet, and then they're just going to wrap it in. I mean, that's like the way the you normally weld. do these things. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's how they're doing it in the future. So this was just a, you know, test article. So it doesn't have to be, well, I guess they didn't think that it had to be designed up to snuff or whatever, you know, like that they could well, just kind of throw it together. Well, when, when they were first building it, they really did intend to fly it. And, and so, yeah, I, I believe that they did design it to flight standards, even if they weren't planning on flying it on an orbital flight, um, they still wanted to be able to, to actually uh, to fly this. Yeah. What What's crazy to me is that they've um, kind of destroyed it, and they're just like, "Meh, we're we're going to move on to Mark Three. We're skipping. We're not going to really spend too much time on Mark Two. We're going to go straight to Mark Three. And it seems really weird to me that they would have put this much time and energy into this into this object, and they're just going to pretty much throw it out. I mean, obviously, there's you know pretty good structural damage and you don't want to, you know, put your, your hopes into it, mm -hmm. but it seems weird to completely abandon. I mean, and, and what could be so much different? So, uh, Elon on Twitter said this object or not on Twitter. He said this in an interview. He said this, uh, Mark one had some value as a manufacturing pathfinder, but the flight design is quite different. And I don't, I don't know what could be so drastically different, um, that would result in like this not being a good, I don't know. I don't know. Well, again, I think it just has to do with the fact that this one was manufactured out of several 
yeah the uh, panels sheets yeah. yeah it was yeah it was like paneled in welded together and it and you know i mean like we've all made fun of it for looking like a giant grain silo and i don't think that the final product will look like that so i yeah. think that there are some differences and maybe not so much a difference in design but you know a difference in i guess like manufacturing technique yeah but i mean that's that's in the final product once once the manufacturing is done that it it's just a mass difference. Like, what do you mean? It, ju it just means that you're, you know, if you weld it, if you have all these separate welds, you're going to have a heavier tank than if you do it in one sheet. But like, I don't think it's going to be that big of a difference. I mean, like, we don't know what the difference is between Mark One and Mark Three are. You know, if if they're actually changing the way that they're built, you know, the the airframe design, uh, or you know, something like maybe they're. You know, maybe this isn't super valuable as a as a test mm -hmm. article, but like, so so the re the reason I'm kind of waffling back and forth here is because there there was a rumor that they had actually intended. Uh, so this this comes from the 4chan rumor, but the 4chan rumor said that even before they even before they started focusing on Mark III, um, they were already expecting like bef before Mark One blew up, they were still expecting to do a flight with it. But the flight wasn't even going to include um, a landing. They were just going to fly it up and then maybe try to land it, but not worry too much. I think what is concerning to me is that this just makes the whole 4chan rumor really unreasonable to me because, like, you've got good engines on there. Why would you not try to recover mm -hmm. them? What could make Mark III so much better that you don't even care about recovering Mark I uh, after its hop to do further testing? So I, I think that's what's making me uncertain is I'm I'm forgetting that we can totally discount the 4chan rumors and keep everything else. And I think I'm kind of mixing things together in my head. I don't know how much faith I'd put in 4chan rumors. Um, <laughs> right. I, I never go to the site, but, you know, I've oh, heard so I. many things about it. Um, I mean, the, the fact that it's anonymous to the point where you can't even track individual authors. I mean, it, it leads to things like uh, QAnon. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so one other rumor or point of speculation was what the tank was filled with. So... Was it nitrogen? Oh, because it I was hearing, a, a, I mean, I was almost certain of that because I don't know why they would use anything yeah. else. But I was hearing some people say it was liquid oxygen, which seemed very dangerous. There's a, there's a reason for that. So the 4chan rumor got posted on Reddit. And um, so I didn't read the, the original post on 4chan, but the author said this, this kind of interesting thing that, that sounds pretty reasonable. It says uh, he said that the um, uh, that the upper dome popped off and the sudden depressurization caused the common bulkhead between the two tanks to pop upwards, which pulled mm -hmm. the fuel tube. So there, there's a, a tube that runs from the top tank through the bottom tank. So I'm pretty sure that's the LOX tube, not the methane tube. But anyway, it pulled that propellant tube up and which, you know, pulled it away from the the aft dome, which allowed uh, a cryogenic uh, gas, <laughs> some some unidentified cryogenic gas to flow out of the bottom of the vehicle and spill onto the pad, which is what you can see in the video. You can see yeah. um, stuff coming out the bottom. And so um, the 4chan user referred to it as locks getting shit all over the, the pad. And then the somebody who was like basically copy pasting 
uh, 4chan post into Reddit said, okay, I think this is because the locks tank is at the bottom. And so the Reddit OP or the, uh, uh, the 4chan OP meant to say that it was liquid nitrogen spilling out of the locks tank. Mm-hmm. But they, so it's all pretty, the mechanics sound reasonable, but the explanation doesn't. But anyway, that's why people are saying, oh, they filled it with locks. It's like, no, they, they did not. <laughs> I can't fathom why they would do that. Yeah, that that's just stupid. Uh, anybody uh, who read a rumor from 4chan or Reddit for that matter and <laughs> then concluded they were putting locks into this thing for a pressure test is just crazy. <laughs> that's not reasonable. But yeah, yeah, uh, nitrogen. Nitrogen, okay. And so we are fairly certain that the top section of the vehicle contains the locks and then the tank below that would be the methane right which is what i'm seeing from various renders but yeah i I think the fact that spacex has shown that over and over and over and that our only reason to think otherwise is a copy pasted rumor i Mm. i I think we're good (laughs) i don't think there's a good reason to to change that understanding All right, let's do short and sweet, extra short since there's no Dennis and we each get one. So what's the first one, Ben? All right, so some new insights into the two failed lunar landings recently have come out. Uh, Both ISRO and Space IL have released further details on the cause of their failed lunar descents. In the Vikram lander's case, the issue was traced to an anomaly during the second phase of the descent that caused the lander to slow more than expected. This set the initial conditions for the fine-breaking phase outside of the system parameters. As for Bearsheet, the issue lies with an onboard software problem that caused the shutdown of two inertial measurement units. Uh, according to Space IL, this issue should be easy to resolve in the future. Yikes. And next up, Starliner rolls out. The CST-100 Starliner left its hangar for neighboring Space Launch Complex 41, where it will be integrated via Crane 2 and Atlas 5. From here, it will launch without crew for its orbital test flight. This test will evaluate data during the entire journey from launch to its arrival at ISS, docking, and return to Earth. After being mated to the Atlas V, the whole stack will first undergo a wet dress rehearsal before launch, which is scheduled to take place on December 17th. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have some winners for our uh, challenge last week. What would be your first words if you were to set foot on Mars? Yeah. So uh, we didn't say that we were going to declare a winner, but I'm absolutely declaring a winner. (laughs) It's uh, So we had uh, six books to give away, six entries, so that works out nicely. Thank you, guys. Um, So I'll I'll be sending out uh, direct messages to get addresses if I don't already have your address. But my favorite is Lucas Moore. (laughs) Uh, his, his, uh, entry was, I'm just a chemist. They should have sent a poet. Wait, I write haikus. <laughs> I like that one too. Yeah. Uh, I thought that one was really good. Um, and then, uh, Anderson Denova, I think, uh, also did a good one that I'll call uh, a runner up. Mars is red. The earth is blue. Nothing but regolith, but still better than the moon. And then, uh, <laughs> I guess also... uh, I like Andrews. Yeah. Andrews, which is our giant spiders. Yeah. That's, that's terrifying. I don't like, <laughs> I like it and hate it. And we, then we had a couple that were, uh, a little young for me anyway, <laughs> Fortnite references and uh, moon cheese references. But anyway, uh, anyway, so our winners are Anderson DeNova, Abe Klein, Lucas Moore, Daniel Cormier, uh, Anthony Liguri, and uh, Andrew, no last name, on Twitter. Thank you guys so much um, for your submissions. I will get these 
signed copies of Soonish out to you. Soonish. Soonish. Ow, yeah. I did not intend to use that pun, but that's just yeah. the pun that I just used, and I'm very sorry. I mean, it's a useful word, Soonish, because that yeah. kind of defines yeah. how we get most things done. Like, yeah, Soonish. Yeah, yeah. Emphasis on the ish. Anyway, um, thanks, guys, for writing in. Thanks again to Kelly and Zach uh, for giving us some books to give away. Uh, very, very kind of them. Okay, so we're about to go to the interview segment, but before that, I wanted to mention that after we recorded the interview, Space D actually reported a successful firing of I2T5. Um, so they basically said that their firing uh, happened over a few tens of minutes and that all the subsystems reported correct operations and thus the commissioning of the thruster was successful. So congratulations, thrust me, and now we'll go into the actual interview. So this week we have someone with us who uh, we met at the IEC conference. Uh, so that was really cool. And uh, we have Elena Sorsoli Rossi, who is from a company called Thrust Me, which is very interesting. I guess we're going to find out what they do, but it's pretty cool stuff. So, uh, Elena, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us what you do at this company because um, it's a very, very interesting and a very innovative thing that you're doing here because um, I mean I think I speak for all of us when we say that you know we actually probably took up more of your time than we did anyone else's um, <laughs> at this conference which was probably like a good half hour so we got to hear all about it. Mm -hmm. Innovative <laughs> is a perfect descriptor I think. Yeah. So what we do at TrustMe basically we build miniaturized uh, gridded ion thrusters for small satellites. What is a gridded ion thruster? It's a propulsion system uh, of electric propulsion system, which basically uses accelerated ions to produce a thrust, and hence the name Thrust Me, which is kind of funny. And what I do specifically, I am the experimental engineer. So what I personally do is that I build the prototypes, I put them into the vacuum chamber, and I test them. So I, I check all the voltages, the current settings, and stuff like this, and I operate the sensors. And then I get results out of that, and that's how I can know what to change in the next prototype, what is good, what's not good, and basically that, that is what I do. And the cool thing about TrustMe is that we don't only use um, xenon gas as a propellant, but we use iodine, which is kind of cool, and I heard in your last episode uh, that you have announced our launch, so I'm very yeah. happy about that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because <laughs> we met you at IAC, and while we were there, I believe you guys said that you had a thruster that was getting ready to launch, but you couldn't really talk about it. And yeah, so exactly. then, yeah. And so then when mm. we saw it on the news, we we're like, yay, it's thrust me. Like it was yeah. very exciting. <laughs> it was very exciting for us as well. It was really, really cool. Um, I can tell you that I'm very, very, very happy about it. For the first time, iodine is in space, which is something that a lot of people have been trying to do. And I'm happy that we managed to do it first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you're, you're so... not the only company that's working with iodine. Um, no, no. And no. so it's really, it, you are, in fact, the first iodine thruster in space then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's uh, so a lot cool. of other companies. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, yeah, other companies, even big ones like Busek or a lot of small ones. But anyway, a lot of people are working with that. But everybody can tell you that iodine is a nasty, nasty substance. So mm -hmm. it's very difficult to work with it at the beginning. So we had a lot of material studies because for those who, does, who don't know, iodine, it's, um, it's an element that is found in the sea and it's also produced in the human body. It's something that you fi usually find in your local store in the salt. So you can have 
sold either with iodine or without and so it's like very easy to find it's kind of everywhere but the thing is that it's very very corrosive for almost everything so mm. if you leave the screwdriver next to an open jar of iodine you can mm. bet that the next day mm. is gonna be like rusty as if it's a thousand years old it's really bad and the same goes for other stuff like including your skin you don't want to touch it because mm. it kind of removes a layer of your skin which is that's why we use it on the uh, you know when you cut yourself you put this disinfectant that is like red i don't know how you, how you call that in english but it's made of iodine mostly because it just cleans you because it corrodes the layer of dirt in your cut uh-huh. so that's what we do and the funny thing about iodine is that it's a solid which means that in standard condition it's a solid so in the same volume you can store more mass in your propellant while xenon is a gas xenon it's what usually people use as a propellant as a propellant for electric propulsion why do they use xenon because it's a gas with molecules that are very they have a molecular mass very high so that when you accelerate them with your electric field in your electric propulsion system since the the force that you need is just about the charge of them right but you want to get as much thrust as possible out of it so the heaviest it is the thing that you propel outside of your system the more thrust you will have in return right mm-hmm. So you want to throw something that has a, an atomic mass as, as big as you can so that you get some thrust in return. Um, and that's why people use xenon, which is a gas, but it's very expensive and it's very rare on Earth. You find it sometimes in the flash of cameras to take pictures, but there is not much. Like a cylinder of it, cylinder like 20 centimeter tall, like a span tall of that would cost around ten thousand dollars yeah that's kind of a lot yeah i see yeah. the same amount of iodine costs like 10 euros maybe ten dollars oh yeah, factor of a thousands not not too bad cost savings <laughs> so i guess so i was gonna ask um is that why radon is not used that's just way too rare to serve as yeah, a propellant yeah most stuff is not used because it's very rare and it's not cost effective so when you design a propulsion system, you don't want to have um, the propellant, which is like costs more than the rest of the system, right? Mm-hmm. And also, a thing about propellant is that usually it has to be uh, inserted into the propulsion system on site, so on the launch site. So you will have somebody, you will need somebody to with a like a degree or some sort, a certificate to be uh, who can handle this gas at a very mm-hmm. high pressure. And you have to convince this somebody to come to your launch site and fill your system that day, that morning. You know, it's kind of expensive since there is not the, the, the rarest gas. The most difficult it is to find somebody who is willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is kind of, actually, I was, I was surprised, to be honest, when I started working in um, propulsion system is one of the biggest pri- uh, prices that go into that were one of the biggest costs of the system itself is the filling of the propellant i didn't know really because we just take it for granted yeah we never think about it we think oh yeah it's the materials of the thing and then the engineers that you have to pay to build the thing but actually the people you have to pay to come to the launch site to fill your system is actually very expensive so so is it is it actually more expensive to pay the guy to wheel out his uh, modified propane tank full of xenon than it is to actually buy the xenon yes yes. wow dang yeah okay okay i didn't realize it was that bad it's a good career path i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah actually it is like uh, people out there that you're listening if you want to specialize in high pressure gas (laughs) and filling for satellites just 
it's a good so so what's what makes it so expensive to get somebody certified to handle xenon is it it can't just be the pressures involved uh it's mostly the pressure but it's also like from what, what so i'm not an expert of this thing but uh-huh. uh my understanding is that people that certified in handling some substance they they just do it substance by substance right oh so yeah, nobody wants to specialize in xenon because, like, who needs it, you know? Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. But the good, the cool thing with iodine is since it's a solid, you can just ship it by post. You don't care. You can you can sell the system already filled. It's just, uh, you know, don't breathe it. Don't touch it. But, <laughs> but it's okay. Yeah. that That's truly insane to me that, like, yeah. th- how, how this solution... So, like, I, I play Kerbal Space Program a lot. Uh, are you familiar with that game? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Of course. Yeah. Um, and so, like in Kerbal Space Program, like all you care about at the end of the day is is thrust and ISP and you know these gross measures, and you don't have to worry about cost. I mean, even if you're playing in like in in career mode where you actually do have to pay money, the game is balanced so that you know cost is really just a a, a very minimal concern. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. like. It's it's just baffling to me that like xenon could be so much more expensive that it makes a lot of sense to trade away all these nice things about xenon just to have access to a yeah. to a, a cheaper um, propellant system. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a bummer to be honest because xenon is like perfect for yeah. for its for what it does. Like our xenon system, it can ignite in less than three minutes. That's like it can go from zero to cold to state of cold to thrusting in three minutes which is like super awesome right you cannot do that with many propellants but the thing is it costs so much to handle it and to mm-hmm. store it and uh, and everything which is yeah it's it's not so good it's not so great especially if your target like in the case of trust me is more satellites so people that that are, are building a six or 12 u cubesat they don't want to spend hundred thousands of dollars just to feel you know the the system so yeah that sucks yeah. <laughs> uh, okay okay so i want to i want to derail you for a second here so we've kind of talked about why thrust me is doing a really cool thing but i i kind of like to talk about this in chronological order so you started with uh, a xenon thruster is that correct yeah exactly our two founders uh, which are called dmitro rafalski and anne anesland they are plasma physicists so they were both like postdocs and actually anne was a researcher in France, in a place called Ecole Polytechnique in Paris, which is a university, one of the famous ones. And um, and there she paired up with uh, Dmitro, and together they were writing a lot of papers about about electric thrusters and research and new ways of doing them, and they, and they thought, yeah, but it would be very cost-effective to do this and, and that. And then they were working about acceleration without a cathode. They were doing a lot of research, and at some point they said, but why do we keep it only to ourselves? Why don't we actually commercialize this stuff? Maybe other people would need this sort of thing. So they started Trust Me uh, three years ago, almost three years ago, I think. And at the beginning, it was inside the university of Ecole Polytechnique. And then they decided to go out. Now we have our own space, you know, our own office. And we produce everything in, in the lab. We have chemical lab, mechanical lab, physics lab, uh, electrical lab. 
and we just build everything our own in-house. So it's really cool. Okay, so so that was just to get the technology up and running. At what point was the actual Xenon thruster constructed? So the first prototypes were constructed by Dima and Anne like years ago, like in their research. But the first Thrasmi one, I think was two years ago, the Xenon one, it was MPT-30 DC accelerated. So direct current, uh, which is our base product, let's say. And then from that, we started, we, we said, yeah, we are have a, we are having a lot of problems with Xenon. Is it really worth it to have Xenon? So we said, okay, let's change to iodine. And that's what we did. So we, we were developing this MPT-30. So MPT-30, uh, the 30 stands for 30 watts of power that you can work with. And we decided to change Xenon to iodine. And so we started that and we started little. So we started just with the propellant tank, which we then thought, okay, since this part is developed, what if we just stuck a nozzle in front of it and call it called gas thruster? And then we use it as a, as a system on itself, a very low cost one. And then we did. So we have also that one now. It's called I2T5 and it's half a U. It's really small and it can even tell you the price. It's only 14 thousand dollars euros mm. euros i think and that's like we made it for universities it's just for you know the orbiting or station keeping or whatever for university projects or very small satellites so was it this iodine gas thruster that that flew on what was the name of the cubes oh galfen seven oh no yeah. it wasn't Ga it flew with galfen seven right but it wasn't uh, oh, it was... the company is called space t space t is a chinese company yeah yeah, I, I don't know the name of it. Uh, the mission is called Laser, I think. I'm pretty sure. I have a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So yeah. it was a, it was it was like a ride along because Galfun. Yeah. So um, ah, Sam in the chat is pointing out that Galfun are the are the really there big. There is a main or... satellite. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so and then this... there are four cube sets. Yeah. Um, piggybacking with that mission. Yeah. Mm. There you go. And so was Spacey flying? Um, I don't know if you can say this or not, but was Spacey flying your actual uh, iodine uh, gridded ion thruster, or were they flying the cold gas thruster? They were flying the cold gas thruster. Okay. So, so the gridded ion, not yet, but it's basically the same. Yeah. Okay. I mean, not it's basically the same, but the <laughs> the, the cold gas is just half of the of the gridded ion full system. It's just the tank, basically. So, so we talked about this, and I it took me forever to get my head around why the heck you would have a cold gas thruster uh, based on solid iodine, because um, on the face of it, it doesn't make any sense to to use iodine, which is you have to heat up and then it bleeds off and then it cools down, and so it's totally imprecise. It doesn't have an engine nozzle. So you, you don't get a lot of thrust out of it. It, it seems like a really miserable engine. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there, there's, again, there's this really magical idea behind it uh, that makes it make a heck of a lot of sense. Can you tell us why the heck yeah. this by all, I, I, and you know, I, I say this with a smile and, and all the, <laughs> all the love in the world, but like, why does this horrible thruster make any sense? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so it's a horrible thruster because it's it was not supposed to be a thruster to begin with. It was <laughs> supposed to be the tank for the actual thruster. And then we were like, you know what? If you just stick a nozzle in front of it, it kind of works. And then we realized because a lot of people, um, especially like CubeSat groups of university of these sort of things, they were asking, do you have any like super, super cheap thruster that you that you can send us and we're like yeah kind of i mean cheap but not like super cheap 
So we say, we thought, why don't we just give them the tank so we can validate half of our system already in space and, and they, they can like, you know, prolong the lifetime of their mission or the orbit or do whatever they want for a really cheap price. And we, on the other hand, get the benefit of validating at least half of our, our thruster in space, right? So yeah, that's why we did it. That's why it's ugly. <laughs> and it's like as simple as it gets. You cannot get more simple than that. It's a brick that sublimates and there's a <laughs> nozzle in front. That's it. Yeah. I, and, and uh, oh yeah, Richard in the chat says, yeah, it's very pretty. And I, I agree. It's not an ugly oh, thank thruster. You. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> um, I, I agree. I, I really like the look of, of all three of you, the uh, thrusters that you had uh, on display. So um, do you know if SpaceD is using it um, just to deorbit? Are they actually doing uh, station keeping or, or anything more interesting than deorbiting with it? No, they are now trying to use it for station keeping. Wow. They are using it for station keeping. Yeah. So, so there are a couple of, of behaviors that, that make that a, a difficult prospect. Could you talk about that? Behavior that make it a difficult prospect? Uh, what, keeping iodine or? Uh, no, oh, I'm sorry. That, that, um, that make it difficult to use this for precision station keeping. Ah, yeah, yeah, sure. I can tell you. Since it is as simple as it gets, there is no valve in front of it. So you have a warm-up curve that will give you an increasing higher thrust until it reaches steady state. And then from there, when you give the off command, there's, you, you'll have to wait like 15 minutes before it cools down completely and it stops thrusting. So you will have at the, at the beginning a warming up phase that will give you more and more thrust until it reaches steady state and then a, a warming down phase. So that's why it's it's not precise, like it's not for attitude control or it's not for collision avoidance yet because it doesn't have a valve to cut on and off the flow. It's literally just a brick that sublimates into a nozzle. Hmm. There is nothing there stopping the flow if you want it. So, so the brick actually sits in vacuum. Yeah. I mean, it sits in his own tank, so there is yeah. like a box right, right, right. of some materials that I cannot tell you. and. The box has some heaters outside, outside of it, and has the iodine inside of it. And when you give the command to fire, the heaters start heating up the box, which contains the iodine, and the iodine sublimates, creates a gas that then just slowly flows through the nozzle, and get, you know, with the convergent-divergent thing, you can get it to actually thrust. <laughs> well, so doesn't that create a problem, though, with the little brick essentially getting smaller and smaller so you have less like surface area to heat up yeah that that's actually a super smart question and that's actually what we thought at the, at the beginning because we were like okay there is a little brick and then the brick gets smaller and then it's not touching the walls anymore so it's get it's just getting heated up by um, uh, radiation so we have found a way that i really cannot tell you because it's kind <laughs> of a secret but there is a way in which the um, there is always some parts in contact with the iodine, even in zero gravity. And when it shrinks, there is still some contact. So the, it's true that the surface gets less. So at the end of light, you will have a slightly different performance out of it. But thanks to the nozzle in the end, the thrust would be similar. It's very, it's negligible, the difference in thrust from beginning of life and end of life. Um, but there is a thing inside the tank that is holding it in place and it's not letting it bounce outside and it's kind of controlling how it shrinks. So that, that required a lot of R&D on our side. We really we tried a lot of things. Uh, and in the end, we found this one that I cannot, I cannot absolutely <laughs> tell you. Otherwise, I would lose my job no, no, today. No, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think at IAC, you called it um, like a popsicle stick. 
um, but a very yeah. fancy, highly engineered popsicle stick, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, congrats to me in the past. That was a good <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a popsicle stick. Yeah, you can you can say. <laughs> uh, but I, yeah, that's it. That's very cool. Let's jump to this question from Richard in the chat. He says, does improved characterization by Elena in the lab help to improve operational precision? And he says, maybe this is through modeling or through better controls. So yeah, my my work, yeah, helps. That's, <laughs> is, this the, is this the question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Richard, from the chat. Yeah, I think I'm useful. <laughs> so basically, experiments and characterization of the thrust profile. So if you do it a hundred times, then you know what to expect, right? Mm. That's kind of the principle of science. So where what what I do on a daily basis is I do the same thing kind of all over again and changing just a tiny bit every day. And with that I can know I can have an expectation of what would happen if I change something. So I do the thermal modeling, I do the flow measurement and thanks to that I can know exactly the what will happen when almost exactly i try <laughs> you know it always sometimes it happens that you just you know you don't close the tank properly and then you have like a huge flow and you don't know why and you're like <laughs> shit and then <laughs> and then everything everything gets corroded in the tank and then i spend like half a day cleaning the vacuum chamber oh. and you know it happens <laughs> Yeah, so so even if you don't even if you don't make a mistake, like you are spewing atomic iodine around a vacuum chamber, like how that's not good. <laughs> yeah, so so how like how do you actually test these thrusters without just like eating through your vacuum chamber on a regular basis? Um, we do eat through our oh. vacuum chambers oh. on a regular basis. Oh wow! <laughs> but we we have other ways. Um, how can I say? We have some traps that kind of stop the iodine, the main, the, the majority of the iodine from sticking to the walls of the vacuum chamber. Sure. And then, of course, there are some tricks, like uh, you don't have to put water in it. So if you, when you fill the vacuum chamber, you have to like fill it with dry air because otherwise the water in the air will react with the iodine and kind of eat up, eat your vacuum chamber from the inside. Wow. Mm. So you don't want to do that. And then you have to clean it all the time. So it's, I don't know if you remember it from our booth, but there was a big picture of, of somebody with a huge, like, zombie apocalypse mask. <laughs> and that was me cleaning the iodine trap. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. We just, you know, I, I wear this kind of paper suit and this zombie apocalypse mask, and I just climb inside it and clean it <laughs> every time. So... Um, at IAC, this is Richard in the chat again. So did you um, did you step over to the Lockheed booth? They had a um, an aftershave that was called the Smell of Space. I think the it, it was originally like a April Fool's Day joke, and they actually like ended up making it because people wanted it so bad. Did Did you check that one out? <laughs> I didn't see. No, I didn't. I, I went to the booth, but I didn't see that. Okay. I actually went to the booth because I was honored that two of the Lockheed Martin guys came to spy on our booth. Oh. So I was like, oh, I'm so honored. I That's would come really back cool. to spy back. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, that was nice. So, well, anyway, so Richard says that you guys need to make an i like an iodine perfume that that lets you smell like an iodine uh, test uh, instrument. If you want to smell like rotten seaweeds, like 
it's a choice. <laughs> I probably smell like iodine right now. So what disappointed me was that uh, the smell of space, like perfume, didn't actually smell like space because I like naively thought that it would, and it, it just smells like cologne or something. It, it did a little bit. You yeah. had to like. Um, I don't see how. You you have to like kind of let it sit for a second, then it starts smelling kind of kind of like uh, soil a little bit, kind of rocky. And then after after those smells kind of faded, then it just smelled like old man smell. Mm. <laughs> I guess That's I mean gross. I've never <laughs> I've never smelled space, but but old man, oh for sure. <laughs> well, you you know what I mean, like like uh, like Old Spice, like you know the the all the aftershaves that old men wear, like yeah. you can just yeah. it's just like they all, <laughs> Which they is all not smell the same. <laughs> Yeah, but that's not how space smells. It should smell yeah. like apparently it should smell like an electrical fire or like burnt yeah. meat or like burnt steak. Yeah, yeah is what yeah. I mean. Acrid. Yeah, very. That's acrid. the smell of danger. Like you know, <laughs> yeah, well, true. Uh, I associate that that smell with oops. What did I burn? Leon in the chat so, says that uh, solid rock repellent smells like a new car. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have some experience in that. Oh, you do? Okay, so have, have you ever smelled a new car smell from... No, oh, he says HTPB smells like new car. Huh. Okay, okay, I also did HTPB. HTPB is a rubber, so it's true that it kind of smells like, yeah. Um, yeah. They, like a tire. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I can see it. But when it that burns, it burns, it's, it's kind of disgusting. I once, <laughs> when I was in university, I was doing like rocket groups, and we had this... Um, I was doing the rocket group and we had this HTPB propellant at some point and, uh, and by mistake, it kind of, <laughs> kind of went off in my face. So I had oh, to, no. <laughs> to smell. Yeah, it was okay, but, but it really smells badly when it burns. It's really, oh, uh, disgusting. Mm. It's like, I don't know, like a trash bin burning. Oh. Not nice. Mm. Not nice. Yeah. Yeah. Ty tire fire that gets you to space. On the other hand, xenon doesn't smell like anything if you feel interested. Um, okay. So, so you mentioned working with HTPB in school. So could you, could you tell us how, how you got to where you are? That's, it's one of the things that we always get asked is like, how do I get into space as a student? Okay. Well, that's kind of easy. So from an engineering point of view, so I'm, a, I'm a space engineer. So that's kind of straightforward. You just go to like, I don't know how it works uh, for you guys, but in, in Italy it works that you can choose your high school, what sort of kind of uh, direction you want it to go. Mm. And for me, I chose the science one. So I chose the science high school. And after that, I just went to aero, aerospace engineering as a bachelor's degree. In, in, I did it in Italy, in Politecnico di Milano. And then after that, I went to Cranfield University in the UK for doing a master in astronautics and space engineering and then it was cool and then i decided that's i think is very important to get into the industry straight away mm. i decided mm. to do my master thesis inside um, a company so you, you usually have the option of doing it with a professor or you can just go out in the industry and kind of doing it with somebody and i really recommend that you guys do that because it's um it re it already puts some job experience in your cv yeah even though technically sense. you haven't worked a day in your life, you know, you're just, you're just a slave. <laughs> so, <laughs> <But still. laughs> so how hard is it to get somebody in the industry to agree to work on a thesis with you? Uh, not really hard. Oh. Um, honestly, you want to know how I got my thesis in DLR? DLR is Deutsche Zentrum für Luft und Raumfahrt. It's the German NASA. Uh -huh. I got my master's thesis in on electric propulsion there. And I just Googled, Googled it and I said, okay, DLR, electric propulsion, cool, I like Germany. Let's see. <laughs> and they were saying about the electric propulsion and there was like, for further questions, this is an email. 
I was like, I have further questions. I clicked on it. And uh, it was the email of um, Dr. Neumann, who happened to be my supervisor later. And literally, my email is like two lines. It's like, hi, I'm really interested in electric propulsion. It's kind of what I want to do in my life. Do you happen to have any open position for a master's thesis there? And he said, yeah, send me your CV. And he sent it. And he was like, okay, cool, you can come. <laughs> huh. I was like, okay. That's it. And so, so you sent one email and got one position, like yeah, hundred percent success kind of rate. That's, For uh... this one, yeah, I mean, I did send like twenty emails to twenty different places, oh, okay. but this okay, one was okay. the first that I sent, okay. and also the fastest that answered me. And they said, yeah, and I said, cool, see you in May. Yeah, so so that uh, uh, that twenty emails out to get to get one position, like that's. A yeah. pretty standard ratio. Like I think one of the things that yeah, more or less. that students are afraid of is sending emails and not getting replies. And like you kind of have to just do it. Yeah, I mean to be honest, I really got ignored by a lot of people. Like it's normal. Uh -huh. Just they don't even bother answering you sometimes. So yeah, but it's okay. But what I think it's kind of important is that you tell them that it's really your passion to do that, and you would like to do an like a thesis on a certain topic that you have to tell them. Mm -hmm. And then they will think, oh, maybe I need a person to do free work about that thing for me. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like you're bothering them. You're offering yourself as a free sure. worker. So and sometimes they even pay you. They didn't pay me, but yeah. That would be really nice if they paid you, though. That sometimes like they do. Actually, gift. Trust Me pays the master's thesis student. Oh, so it? have you taken on any master's thesis students yourself? Oh, yeah. How, how... We have. We have had recently two of them, and now we have one. Uh -huh. Uh, we have had two in electric uh, for electric engineering, and now we have one guy who is doing orbital dynamics. Oh! Uh, but it's super easy. I mean, he wrote to us saying, "Hey, I want to do orbital dynamics. Do can I do something for your company? I really want to do that." And my boss said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> you know, <laughs> they they had a chat, of course, and they they checked that he was nice and not a dick and uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> right. not a nasty person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And that's it. That's kind of all it takes because in the end, you're just, you're doing a favor to the company. It's not like you have to feel like you are begging. And that's a lot of people think that and they, they feel, oh, they will never want me. I just have to beg them to take me. Mm -hmm. But it's not true. I mean, the everybody gains from this deal, you know. Sure. So this iodine thruster, um, you've just talked about how incredibly corrosive it is. So how do you prevent that same kind of corrosion happening with the actual thruster in space because you want to maintain your spacecraft and you don't want it to be completely like eaten up by this iodine. So how do you mm -hmm. do that? Uh, you have all the difficult questions, David. <laughs> I'm, think, I'm thinking that maybe I cannot, I cannot fully okay. answer that, but I can answer it par partially. So it's basically material studies. So we found some materials that are good with iodine. So it do, they do not corrode. There are a few. There, there is, there is not many of them, but some of them exist. And with those, some metallics, some ceramics, some polymers, some everything, they do not react to iodine. And these ones are the only ones that we are allowed to use. So all the components are made like that. And then for, um, for so our system is safe. And then people often are scared, like, but what about the rest of our satellite? Will it be affected? And the answer is no, because when you have an acceleration, it's very directional. So you will lose iodine, but in space, it's actually much better than in a vacuum chamber because it would just throw, be thrown away, and in the meantime, you're somewhere else. So you yeah. don't it, really have to. 
it's literally the best place you can be is on the other yeah. side of the thruster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like saying you're in, the, in your car and you're driving, like, and people ask you, why are you not smelling fuel? It's just mm -hmm. because the fuel is behind me and I'm driving with the car. You know, it kind of, kind of smells. So th this is a materials question, which I understand is uh, both proprietary and difficult to answer and, pro and difficult to understand. But so I, I understand that, you know, you could basically line... Uh, all of the interior surfaces with whatever magic um, polymer works. Do you have to do anything with the with the grid to to keep it from? Because I know that yes. one of the main, even with xenon, like the the grids degrade over time. Do you guys have any special considerations there? Yeah, yeah, of course. As you you kind of pinpointed the main problem of gridded ion thruster, which is the erosion of the grid. Actually, it's the second worst one because the worst oh. one is um, the death, let's say, of the cathode, the anodized, oh. uh, uh, the neutralizer, you know, because maybe I didn't properly explain how gritted ion thruster works, but there is the FIB gas, the gas is fed into a place called plasma chamber, in which there is basically a big antenna that generates a strong electric field that uh, breaks the molecule of the gas into ions, and then these ions get accelerated by two sets of grid. Actually, one, one accelerates and another one kind of keeps it, keeps it in. And this grid generates a very strong electric field that uh, tracks the ions. And then since it has holes, they let them pass through. And that's how you get the beam of light behind it, kind of. And that's really cool. Like, you know, the science fiction kind of looking thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very You get it because mm -hmm. you get that. But then what is, it, what is happening is that you're shooting out positive, usually positive, ions so you're shooting out something that is charged and if you keep shooting out positive stuff in the end your satellite is going to become negative and what happens if there is something positive just kind of floating around something negative it will want to come back right mm -hmm. and then you kill your stuff if your plume wants to come back to the structure because it gets attracted by it because the different in charge is, is too much then you're not going anywhere because you're like your fuel is kind of coming back to you so that's why uh, there is a thing called neutralizer cathode or whatever depends what uh, charges it but this part basically shoots electrons at the outgas so at the plume and this way it recombines the molecule from ions to a neutral a neutral and this neutral doesn't want to come back because it has no charge it loses the charge and the thing is the most uh, uh, let's say fragile part of the thruster is this part is the cathode of neutralizer because those ones are basically electron canals and they break super easily and they are actually very expensive especially if they're like hollow cathode what people usually do for big ones we do one that is very simple better <laughs> <laughs> but it, which is more similar to a light bulb to be honest it's just a filament cathode but because our system is so small that we don't really need to have a hollow cathode uh, but still, this is the most fragile part, and it's the part that kind of determines the lifetime of the thruster, more than the grid, because it's true that, like, you cannot have redundancy with the grid, but you can have redundancy with the cathode, and yet the cathode still dies pretty quickly. But that is uh, also... But there are ways to go around it. Actually, we're trying to develop one, which is, instead of having, like, um, a direct current into the grid, if you have... AC current into the grid, you don't have to, you don't need a neutralizer. So a part of Trust Me is also like developing that. So we are actually not need, don't need the cathode. So we can just, our only limit is the erosion of the grid. This is something that we have managed to make it work, but we still haven't com commercialized it yet. 
because it's still in development but it's gonna be cool and it's gonna be i hope revolutionary from that point of view and then yeah and then your only limitation for the life is gonna be the grid the erosion of the grid but the good thing is that iodine i mean it doesn't really matter if it's iodine or xenon that it goes on the grid because um the material that we use for the grid is resistance to iodine it actually was from before and we just found out it was okay so it doesn't really matter it's more a matter of like being ionized all the time of course the, the the little holes will become bigger and bigger and then eventually break but since our system is so small we actually don't have this problem because the the propellant is gonna end before sure, sure. yeah so if we wanted to make i don't know a 5u <laughs> sort of tank like a super big maybe then we will have this problem but not yet and the performance for our lifetime it really doesn't change there is a bit of corrosion of course but it's negligible it would be a problem in like a, i don't know 15 years mission not like a couple of years more. that's pretty good so yeah yeah it's pretty cool and this um, cathode-less thruster they are really a thing to look forward to i hope we can uh, we can do them soon it's gonna be really nice to not have to worry about the, the cathode breaking yeah because that part is honestly really fragile and yeah i i, I spend a lot of time changing them so if i could not change them or not having them i would be happier also because I break them with my hands and I take it off, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> kind of, it's kind of my fault. <laughs> but uh, it's okay. So um, one of the things that you mentioned is that even though you're, um, you're a test engineer, you actually provide feedback into the next design iteration. So, um, I mean, my day job, I, I just collect data. It, I don't do any analysis. I just collect data. But it sounds like you do a little bit more. You collect data and then actually have uh, input on the design. What what does that look like, and is that what you expected to to wind up doing? And, and is that just because it's a small company, you have to wear multiple hats? Like, how does that work? I would say probably it's thanks to the fact that it's a small company, so we are only twenty people. So kind of everybody helps in whatever they have time to. So, for example, if I start my experiment and then I have nothing to do, I will help the electronics or I will help somebody doing something. And it's true that I'm, I'm really part of this design and deve the development part mm -hmm. because since I am the user, let's say, I can tell this thing doesn't work, this thing should be more like that. And then I help like by saying, telling ideas like, why don't we do that instead of this? So it's really cool and I work, work in really close contact with the CTO. So we're always there together looking at the thing and then I tell him maybe we should shouldn't do that. And then he said, uh, no. And then maybe he said, but, and then maybe I say, what about this? And he said, no. And then maybe the third one that I say, maybe we, <laughs> we will change it. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm really part of it. And it's more of a teamwork, honestly. Uh, in the lab, we are only, uh, like basically six or seven people that are doing the same thing, more or less. Not the same, but we are, we are all like um, producing a part of it. We are the people that touch stuff. Mm. And these guys, we, we just, you know, we talk to each other, we, we have lunch together, we, we just, we just uh, discuss what we should do. We are, it's very, yeah, it's very, it's very into a teamwork. It's, it's mm. mostly like a sharing of things. It's a common thinking. Yeah, brainstorming of a lot of ideas. And I sure. think probably it's because we are a small company. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's because we are few. If we were many, maybe... I wouldn't, I would maybe restrict my job to just doing a certain thing and not multiple. But I really like the way it is because I think it really works like this. It's, it's interesting for me to have, you know, to go to the mechanical person and say, 
can you design this a bit shorter? Can you design mm. this a bit taller? So, yeah, I really love the fact that it's very fast, you know, the development. You don't have to, you know, write a report analysis sure. to send to the department that maybe will change and blah, blah, blah. You just literally walk to their desk and you say, hey, this thing keeps breaking. Can you change it? <laughs> that's pretty Yeah, cool. <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah. So I think startups are really cool, especially as like a first job. Because you get to learn a lot, you really get, mo you move a lot, you, you kind of have your fingers in everything, in multiple jars, you know, can you say that? <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's cool, especially if you want to learn. I recommend working in a small company for a while. So, um, you mentioned how, how iodine, the, the plume that comes out the back of the thruster is yellow. Um, I, gu I guess I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite color? Like, what's your favorite propellant just by color? Okay, that's, that's really cool because, like, xenon is pink slash purple, and it's really, at least at the, at the energy level that we do. And it's really awesome because it's like this pinkish violet light. It makes it really awesome. But iodine, yet again, is, it's green and my favorite color is green so i would say maybe <laughs> that one is best and once we did one with the argon so we did some um, um we basically downgraded one of our thrusters to be like an ion source for the study of the ionosphere for the university of oslo oh, they cool. wanted to have an ion source yeah so we said okay we can just remove the acceleration for our from our thruster and then we can give it to you and they said okay but we don't want xenon because it's i think expensive and we want something else and we said okay we're gonna do argon instead which costs like it's very less uh so we did and argon was bright pink mm. so like <laughs> it was really fun <laughs> like bright pink it was it was cute That's but nice. i think iodine is my favorite because iodine is really cool and also the plume that we get is super defined it's mm. like <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but when we when we turned it on the the first time, uh, my CTO said it's a freaking Jedi. <laughs> it, it looked like a lightsaber. It was that. It was that well defined. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. It was oh. crazy. I think we have a picture of that on LinkedIn, and uh, it's really like you can totally see the beam. It's super straight. It's super nice, and it's awesome. And uh, that's that. I think is my favorite because it's. That's it's a freaking Jedi. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Um, I, I think we're going to let you go, but we have two traditional final questions that we ask. Um, so I'll, I'll ask you the, um, the penultimate question, which is, where would you like to be found on the internet? So we can link people to um, thrustme.fr. Is there any place else that yeah. you'd like to, to point people at? I would say the LinkedIn page of thrustme. That's actually much better than the website at the moment. Yeah, the LinkedIn page of Trustme. So Trustme spelled T H R U S T M E on LinkedIn or my LinkedIn as well. If you want to ask me questions directly, feel free. Yeah, I can go ahead and put in a, a link to you. That'd be fine. All right. So, Elena, final question. Yeah. If you could bring one object with you into space, what would it be? You can assume you're safe, mm. you've got life support, <laughs> but you still had the option of bringing one object with you. What do you go with? Okay. Ah, uh, oof. Should I be childish and bring my stuffed cow with me, which Ooh. I sleep with? That's kind of childish. What 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 kind of what kind of cow is it? It's, it's a black and white cow, and she's like now now looking at me from the bed, and she's like, <laughs> you should totally bring me. 
So kind of say no to those stuffed eyes. Yeah. So I would say. <laughs> no, I no, no. I like that. <laughs> that is a wonderful choice. <laughs> yeah. I am all for stuffed cows in space. First, yeah. First yeah, plush she's cow just looking space. at me saying, come on, take me. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, Moo, I have to take you. Yeah. Is, is that her name, Moo? Moo, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> say shout out to Moo, who is for sure listening to us right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or either that, actually, my second choice would be the Star Trek pin, because that's Ooh. like the communication, the communicator. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. That's actually good. And, and the Italian, ast- but you know what? The Italian astronaut, Samantha Cristoforetti, she, yep. she brought, she brought, uh, the Star Trek pin and the whole, like, spacesuit of yeah, the, the whole Star Trek uniform. Voyager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. We'll do that as well, probably. And, uh, uh she was the first italian or i think she i think she was there when they installed the espresso machine so she was like the first yeah, exactly. italian astronaut to get access to, to espresso yeah and she space. she also quoted she quoted captain janeway from star trek <laughs> yeah she said uh coffee the finest suspension ever invented i beat the board with it <laughs> she tweeted that all right well lena cool. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this was uh very entertaining this is fun. I've learned yeah, a lot. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Moving on to this week in space flight history. So, yeah, you had a good clue last week, and we got some good answers. We got one that was actually 100% yeah. correct. <laughs> yeah. Well, so before we get on to that, um, I, this might have gone in questions, comments, and corrections, but it seemed appropriate here. Uh, Chubby Turkosi not only guessed the clue for this week correctly, but also had a, a good... Uh, a good uh, forehead slap moment. Uh, last week, I said that Collins uh, flew on STS-144, but as Chubby correctly points out, there were only 135 shuttle flights. She actually yeah. flew on STS-114, not 144. Mm. Uh, that's definitely my kind of mistake. All right. So our winners this week, um, I, I'm going to give most credit to Cy Kyle, who got it perfect, perfect, perfect. But uh, also guessing correctly were Coaster Gallery, Jason Friesen, and uh, Chubby Turkosi, of course. Um, the clue from last week was the cold dead 1%. And this week in spaceflight history is November 28th, 1964. It was the launch of Mariner 4. So Mariner 4 is uh, basically, and we've talked about a bunch of Mariners, but I don't think I've actually described them very well. So it's a octagonal frame made out of magnesium. Yes, very cool. I mean, obviously not pure magnesium. Don't be crazy. Uh, right, right. It can't be pure magnesium. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Right, that's highly flammable. Yeah. Uh, I oh, it's magnesium and aluminum. That's what it is. So this octagonal prism is 120 centimeters across, uh, the longest distance, so across the diagonal, and 45.7 centimeters high. And then on top there are four solar panels that stick out, kind of like angel wings. Um, we talked a little bit about this on episode 83, way back on episode 83, um, when I was talking about Mariner 3, um, which launched like, uh, like a month before Mariner 4 and, uh, was a failure. And then what's really cool, and this is what I don't think I've talked about, is that there are these, they look like square ping pong paddles at the tips of each of the solar panels. They're actually articulating solar pressure veins to help, uh, with attitude control. Pretty darn cool. Mariner 4, uh, had a lot of firsts, but one of the, ones that I think is really interesting is that it was the first mission to actually require star tracking. So they had a a star tracker that could track a single star. They picked the star Canopus and um, the software basically allowed a a lock to be formed on any object that was within 
an eighth the brightness of Canopus or eight times greater than the brightness of Canopus. So that this huge range. Um, and, and as wide as that range is, it still only included seven stellar objects. Um, but still, that's more than one. So when they booted up the Star Tracker, it actually took them uh, more than a day of uh, locking onto the wrong object, breaking the lock, and then locking onto another object, and then breaking the lock, and locking onto another object. They call this, uh, uh, I think, uh, object hopping or, or lock hopping. Um, so they basically couldn't tell it exactly where Canopus was, but they tried to get close. Um, they ended up hitting four different stars that weren't Canopus and also a refraction ray from the glare coming off of the Earth. But eventually they hit it. But once they hit it, they kept losing the lock on occasion. They couldn't figure out why. There was this roll anomaly that kept coming in um, where the solar tracker said, hey, the space the spacecraft is rolling. And so I'm going to try to follow the star. And all of a sudden the star has gone. What happened? Um, it turns out that the, the spacecraft was releasing little particles of some kind, you know, maybe ice or something, who knows. But these particles would catch the sunlight and glare and... Um, the software already had a lock on Canopus, so it, it should ignore that glare, even if it's within the eighth to eight times greater range that it could detect. Um, but what happened was that they actually got so bright that they went beyond that eight times brightness range, and that was enough to break the lock. And so they, they had to do a little space hack where they uh, adjusted the software, and basically they got rid of the upper end of the range and somehow that made the math work out properly so that it, it was happy to to stay locked on canopus it still detected these particles but it didn't lose its lock I, I guess so there were a number of scientific instruments on board but notably was a digital camera so mariner 4 was sent to mars and so it had um this this telescope that was just right for looking at the surface of Mars, it had a 1.05 degree uh, field of view telescope. So it was a square field of view, 1.05 degrees by 1.05 degrees. It also had red and green filters. So it had a black and white imager, but black or, uh, but uh, uh, red and green filters that it could put in front of it. And so it uh, took photos alternating with red and green filters. And as it was flying past Mars, because it didn't enter orbit of Mars, um, it was basically taking these photos in series, making steps across the Martian surface. Um, and they didn't quite connect because it was moving so quickly. Um, but some of them overlapped, which is nice because we actually got a, a not a red-green-blue color image, but a red-green image. Uh, the images that it took, this was before CCDs. Uh, so it actually had a, a cathode ray scanner. There's a specific name for it that I that I forget. Uh, but it, you know, it's basically a cathode ray tube that detects uh, brightness instead of displaying brightness. And it recorded all of the images onto tape and then broadcast them home after the flyby. It actually flew behind Mars, so it was actually out of contact for a little bit. Uh, in addition to being busy taking photos, these photos each took about six hours to radio home. And there's this image that is so captivating. It's the first image of Mars. So there are two versions of this image. One is a black and white square image um, where they 
took all the uploaded data and put it through their um, their processor that could spit out an actual graphic. But when when they first got the data back, they weren't a hundred percent sure. Uh, about the calibration for uh, for this computer that would do the translation. So they actually built the image by hand. They made a printout of, of the data that came back, basically uh, pixel brightness values, and they cut them into strips uh, that represented each column of the image and then tacked them to a board overlapping so that the values were showing in each column. And then they um, basically played connect the dots where they outlined general areas that had the same brightness values and then filled those in. They actually used pastel crayons and they produced this absolutely gorgeous image that uh, is stretched out um, because the pixels aren't square anymore. They're quite long and uh you know it's it's now this framed artifact but it they uh you know they they drew this up and basically hung it on the wall and went okay here's our data and you know he, now we can begin to calculate it uh begin to um do the calibrations and actually generate real real visualizations of this data but it's like here's this hand-drawn beautiful i think a, a really beautiful piece of art um and and I've worked a couple of times to try to see if I can get that data pulled out of storage because I would really like to make this a real, like make a replica for my for my wall. I, I think I'd really like to do that at some point. So the hand-drawn image um, looks very much like a lander on the surface looking at looking at a slope. Um, but in fact, it is um, the, the dark area at the bottom uh, is actually space and uh, it's the black and white image that I've posted rotated 90 degrees. So in the show notes, we'll have uh, a number of images, but notably will be a photo of this hand-drawn image uh, framed. It was presented to Dr. Pickering. I'm assuming it's still in his office. And then the, uh, also the black and white high, you know, quote unquote, high fidelity version uh, that was uh, that was actually made by hand uh, as the images came in. Yeah. And it was six hours for each image. Like they did what they could with so little um and yet these images are very i don't know how to put it like humble you know like yeah 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 very early images because like these days we have such good images from mars or not just from orbit but even the surface of mars and you can see like you know individual rocks up yeah. close and personal but this is just these first very pixelated and kind of like grainy or staticky i'm not sure what the right yeah. word is but uh yep. just yeah low-res just, images yeah fuzzy okay so it's presented to dr pickering um the the director of jpl right um he's actually dead i just looked him up he actually um yeah uh sam in the chat points out that if you zoom in on the hand-drawn images you can see the the printed numbers behind mm -hmm. behind the crayon the pastel right. crayon and, and I, th I think it's just such a visceral depiction of this data i just i just love it anyway um so uh so dr pickering actually died he died in 2004 so i wouldn't be surprised if this was still at jpl somewhere if anybody knows where it is i would love to find out because um i would love nothing better than to go look at this thing in person just i mean it's just it's always been one of my favorite space artifacts i mean just mm -hmm. it's like the perfect combination of something that's very technical and then mm -hmm. something that's not something mm -hmm. that's just pure art you know it's just mm -hmm. like yeah you can see how people had drawn with crayons on that tape yeah and it, it's just, i don't know yeah it like it is kind it's of visceral 
Yeah. What's interesting is that the one that was colored by hand is actually in color, but the other <laughs> one is not. That's just in black and white. Yeah, they, they just, just guessed at kind of these red colors. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. not, it's not a real depiction, but... I guess because they only had so many colors in, you know, the little box of crayons, right? I'm, I'm not, uh-huh. I mean, it does look like it was drawn with crayon. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what they actually use, but... Pa- pastel uh, crayons, yeah. So another image that's going to be in the show notes is the the highest, well, the clearest image that that we got back. Um, showing craters on Mars. So the thing is, we expected Mars to potentially host life. We didn't realize that it was this geologically dead planet. And we didn't realize that its atmosphere was so small that it couldn't even protect itself from from meteor impacts or meteorite impacts. And so we we got these images uh, of a cratered atmosphereless world, this airless body, and it, it changed our understanding And so the clue for this week was the cold dead 1%. And so the cold dead represents or is is talking about our new understanding of what Mars is. And the 1% is they they imaged only 1% of the surface. Um, By contrast, some of the later Mariner missions would image up to 20% you know, on a, on a single, on a single shot. So the, the sixties were a magical time for space, weren't they? Yeah. Okay. So, so let's do a quick overview of Mariner's four's life. It flew past Mars on July 14th and 15th, 1965. Um, it ended up, you know, flying past Mars and drifting farther and farther around the sun relative to the earth. And on October 1st, 1965, uh, so that'd be almost exactly a year after it was launched, it ended up, um, we, we lost data connection with it. It has a high gain antenna and a low gain antenna, and the high gain antenna has to be pointed precisely, and it couldn't be pointed precisely enough um, at this distance to relay data. We reacquired data uh, late in the year on 1967, and then uh, September 15th, 1967, the vehicle had a micrometeorite detector, and it actually got pinged with 17 micrometeorites in a 15-minute time span. It was later determined, determined may be a strong word, it was later conjectured, we're reasonably sure that what happened was the vehicle flew through the tail of a comet, specifically D1895Q1, also known as D-Swift. And we think that it actually got within 20 million kilometers of the core uh, of this uh, of this comet, which is pretty cool. On December 7th, 1965, they ran out of cold gas for the attitude thrusters. And then on December 10th and 11th, they registered 83 hits from micrometeorites, which ended up being enough to nudge the spacecraft out of alignment with Earth. On December 21st, 1967, we terminated communications with the, with the spacecraft altogether. So long, Mariner. So with that, what is our clue for next week? This is going to be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, so so you actually picked this one out. So I think that you yeah. have to do this week in space flight history next week. So it's an it's an audio clue. So it's nineteen. It's next week in nineteen forty five. You were discussing critical space stuff with your pals the other day. All right, there you go. That's this week in space flight history. And so if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Yeah, and I'll let you say good luck a second time because you're going to be presenting it. Good luck, everybody. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to upcoming space flight events. And we got, I don't know, what, three or four launches-ish, yeah. depending on <laughs> if they launch. So <laughs> Well, and, and so this really has been the week of delays. So PSLV XL... Uh, got delayed right now. Uh, so so it's flying a Cardosat 3 and some Super Dove CubeSats and the MeshBed CubeSat, uh, all these different 
you know, rideshare kind of stuff. That got delayed for an unknown reason. Uh, East Row has not explained why they delayed it. But right now it's scheduled to fly November 27th at 0330 hours UTC. And then next up is an Electron launch, and that is launching uh, the mission called R Running Out of Fingers, which uh, is because it's its 10th flight, so they're running out of fingers now. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this one before, but I don't... I, I mean, we, we may did. have mentioned it. I think we mentioned it, but I don't know if we mentioned any... Oh, launch okay. date okay so yeah so the launch date now is november 28th it's uh, carrying some small satellites for um some commercial customers but the cool thing is that this is the first flight where it will be demonstrate or trying to demonstrate or trying to gather some data rather on a guided re-entry so yeah this is uh, part of their ambition to actually bring a first stage back and they're they're only going to do parachutes right the, yeah small they're, enough. they're just doing parachutes so they they've they have previously collected data on re-entry but this is the first time i guess they're trying to do guided reentry. So I wonder if they're doing a, a hypersonic uh, retrograde propulsion event or something. I'm trying to remember the presentation that Peter Beck gave. I think that it is something like that, quite possibly. But there was something about there being, I do remember him mentioning that there's no active systems or something to that effect, like, which kind of made you wonder, mm -hmm. well, then how is this thing going to be guiding itself back? So yeah, they must be reigniting something like that has to be happening. Sa right? Sam in the chat says they said there would be some externally obvious modification to the rocket, but not exactly what that would be. So okay. maybe when the, maybe when the live stream starts, we'll begin to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm really curious now, uh, externally obvious modification i'm sure we can all assume it's not a pair of giant wings although I wouldn't put oh past uh it. no i found it reaction control system so it's just gonna be some uh, some thrusters on the outside well a reaction control system seems like an active system and i thought that they said I no agree. yeah so i don't know <laughs> at any rate it will be cool to see it come back though yeah. like that's that's yeah, the cool always. thing and so um That'll be November 28th, and the launch time is 07.56 through 09.22 UTC. So that's like almost like one hour and 45 minutes-ish. And it looks like they're targeting the beginning of the window, by the way. Yeah, um, and that's launching from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1, which uh, does not say here, but I believe that that is obviously at the tip of the Bahia Peninsula up in or down in New Zealand. Yep. And then next, the Ariane 5 ECA from last week flying TBA-1 and Inmarsat 5 F5 was delayed. It's not an issue with the rocket. It's just a ground system issue. One of the electrical systems uh, had a problem. So they delayed it. We're not 100% sure when they're going to fly it again. Um, originally, they had talked about just delaying it like two days to last Saturday, but uh, or, or I guess yesterday, but uh, it, it didn't fly yesterday. So we're not 100% sure when it's going to fly, but we thought it would be worth mentioning um, that that will be rescheduled at some point. And then finally, on December 1st, is a Soyuz 2.1A, and that's launching uh, a Progress MS-13 mission, or 74P. And I think 74P, what, that's the NASA designation for that, right? Or whatever. Yeah. I always get them confused. Yeah. Yep. Uh, MS-13 is Russia, 74P is, yeah. And I guess the P stands for Progress. Yeah. Know. So the way the way you can remember it is this is a 74th progress total, which is all NASA cares about. What Roscosmos cares about is the actual model of the progress. So this is a progress MS okay. and it's the 13th MS. Yeah, because I have the worst time trying to remember which is which uh, <laughs> and I'll, I'll never be able to commit it to memory. All right. So that's good. Yeah. And so this is just a well, this is just a progress mission to the station. And there's no real details given on launch library, but we do know that it's launching on uh, December 1st at 11. 29 UTC, so obviously that's an instantaneous launch window, and mm -hmm. that's launching from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And that'll run
rendezvous the same day. It's I believe it's doing the the fast two orbit rendezvous. So the rendezvous will be covered on NASA TV uh, as per. Uh, that's uh, again December third at uh, the coverage begins at. 8 a.m. Eastern Time. The docking is scheduled at 8.43 a.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, it's launching in the morning and rendezvousing in the morning. That's a time zone <laughs> difference. And then um, just uh, just before that, on December 2nd, which is Monday, um, will be the next spacewalk. This is Spacewalk 60. So, so we missed the second spacewalk last week. Um, I don't think it had been announced um, when they were going to be doing this. This is uh, Spacewalk 60. This is the third of the four uh, Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer spacewalks. Uh, coverage begins at 5.30 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time. The spacewalk begins at 6.50 a.m. Eastern Time. And again, this is uh, Luca Parmitano and uh, Drew, uh, Drew Morgan? A- Andrew Morgan. Alrighty, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to deal with the show. We would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. Hey, I'm going to start looking for a front-end developer. If you're interested, give me a buzz. For more information, on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We are Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it, and we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.